0: Parsha's Pashalach has 116 verses and one mitzvah, and arguably it is the most action-packed one. The Jewish people are leaving Egypt, they're fleeing, they're going to be surrounded by their enemies by the Sea of Reeds. And, of course, there's going to be the great miracle of the splitting of the sea. Uh, They're going to get to a place where the waters are bitter and they're going to be magically sweetened. Moses is also going to bring forth water from a rock. They're going to defeat their enemies, Amalek, in the first war waged by the Jewish people as a nation. And also in this week's Parsha, the beginning of the manna, which is going to sustain the Jewish people for the 40 year journey in the wilderness. The magical bread from heaven is going to begin to descend on a daily basis. And the Parsha begins with the Jewish people leaving Egypt. It happened when Pharaoh said to the people that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines because it was near, for God said, perhaps the people will reconsider when they see war and they will return to Egypt. A very interesting first verse in our Parsha. The Jewish people are leaving Egypt and of course the destination is back in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. What is the closest path between two points? Of course, it's a straight line. And we're told over here that the Jewish people are not going to take a direct line towards the land of Israel through the land of the Philistines because that's too close. And if they're going in too direct of a path, they may turn back and reconsider and go back to Egypt. So God turned the people towards the way of the wilderness to the Sea of Reeds and the children of Israel were armed when they went up from Egypt. So instead of taking them directly towards the land of Canaan, they're going to take a circuitous route, they're going to head towards the land of the Philistines, they're going to circle back, head back towards the land of Egypt, and off to the side towards the Sea of Reeds. Instead of taking the most direct route towards the land of Canaan, they're going to take a long cut. They're going to take the longer path through the wilderness towards the Sea of Reeds. Rashi tells us that If they were going in a direct path, they would want to return because even now when they took a circuitous route later on in the book of Numbers, we're told that the Jewish people wanted to return back to Egypt. And certainly if it was even easier to do that, they would definitely want to return to Egypt. So there's a few interesting points here. Number one if you remember last week, we learned about the people who did not want to leave Egypt. And those people died during the three days of the Plague of Darkness. So here, these are not the people that wanted to stay in Egypt. These are the people that wanted to leave Egypt and still were concerned that they may want to return to go back to familiar territory. Even people that want to leave, still, when they are in a new place, and a new environment, there's a certain comfort of what you know so that's the first point. The second point is, is that the Almighty manipulated the events to ensure that they are locked in because this is the right thing for them. And he knows that they're going to be scared and they're in their new situation. He's going to kind of force their hand and compel them to stay on this path, even though they're going to have impulses to return. Now, the Midrash here tells us something else, which is somewhat interesting, that the Jewish people actually needed to stay in the wilderness for 40 years because otherwise when they get to the land of Israel, they won't be able to be fully immersed in Torah study. Our nation, after all, is going to stand for Torah study above all. And if the Jewish people, right away, they get in the land of Israel, there's going to be a mad rush towards acquiring fields and vineyards, and people are going to be so consumed with that, and therefore they're going to abandon Torah study. However, the Almighty says, I'm going to make them go through the wilderness for 40 years. And for 40 years, they're going to live in a supernatural plane. They're going to eat the manna. They're going to drink water from a magical well that's going to follow them. And then the Torah is really going to be instilled into their bones. And therefore, once they get to the land of Israel, they'll be more primed to be the nation of God, the nation that stands for Torah. And therefore, they might wanted to elongate their trip to take them through the circuitous path to have the Torah penetrate their essence. Now, as the people are leaving were told in verse 19, that Moses took the bones of Joseph with them because Joseph made everyone promise that when God takes you out, take my bones with you. This is somewhat of a little bit of an interesting anecdote that as the Jewish people are leaving, Moses is busying himself with recouping the bones of Joseph to take them with them to bury them in the land of Israel. The Midrash tells us that this is really a compliment to Moses. The whole nation, they were busy amassing gold and silver. And Moses, what's his concern? Not to stockpile gold and silver as they leave, but rather with the mitzvah of exhuming Joseph's bones to fulfill the promise that the Jewish people made to him to bury him in Israel. We're told, interestingly, in the Midrash, that how did Moses do it? Uh, Joseph's bones were buried in a box at the riverbed of the Nile. And Moses wrote on a metal plate, alay shar, arise, O ox. He put that magical plate into the Nile and the bones of Joseph floated to the top. That little anecdote is important because one of the Egyptians who ended up joining the Jewish people saw what had happened and went and grabbed that metal plate and he would eventually use that to make the other ox of the book of Exodus, namely the golden calf, to facilitate that and have that come out of the fire later on in uh, chapter 32 of Exodus. And I think it's also interesting here. We see this contrast. The Jewish people are leaving, they're fleeing, and what are they doing? What are they busy themselves with? What's their agenda as they leave? how do we get as much gold and silver as possible before we go? What is Moses doing? He says, no, I'm going to go and get the bones of Joseph. And I think this is a nice image. Even if millions of people are doing one thing, you don't necessarily need to blindly follow. You have to do what you think is appropriate, given the time and circumstances. The whole people, everyone's trying to get gold and silver, and indeed, they were told to do that by Moses himself, but Moses thought that it's appropriate for him to, to go now, busy himself with something else, and therefore he went off on his own to get and gather Joseph's bones. Now there's an interesting Rashi here that asks the question: We read at the end of Genesis that Jacob made Joseph swear to him as he was about to die to bury him in the land of Canaan. When Joseph was about to die, why didn't he do the same? Why didn't he? Why did he not gather his children and tell him, "When I pass, take my bones go bury me immediately"? in the land of Canaan? Why did he only convey this to the Jewish people when you leave, when the exodus happens, then you take me out? So Rashi says that Joseph said that I was after all the viceroy of Egypt and I have the ability to fulfill it. But my children, they will not have the ability to fulfill it. Egypt will not allow them to take my bones out and therefore he only asked that the Jewish nation as a whole, when they leave, when they're redeemed by God, that they take me out of here. And I think this is a nice lesson for us as parents, when we make demands of our children, make them reasonable, and things that are feasible for them to fulfill. If it's not feasible for them to fulfill, we should not be asking that for them. So they journeyed from Sukkos, they encamped in Etam at the edge of the wilderness, And verse 21 and 22, we're told what the environment that God created for them. Hashem went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day and by night. And God did not remove the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The people were enmeshed, were ensconced. By pillars of cloud by day, pillars of fire at night, and that did not cease. Before one went away, the next one was already already present. Demetrius tells us that actually there were seven different clouds, one on bottom, one on top, and one in each direction for a total of six, and a seventh one that went ahead of the people that flattened mountains and filled in valleys and burnt and consumed snakes and scorpions, cleared the path for the Jewish people to walk without any troubles. And in fact, this pillar of cloud actually lasted for 40 years. The Talmud tells us that it was given to the Jewish people in the merit of Aaron. When Aaron died, it seized, but immediately returned in the merit of Moses. So essentially, for the next 40 years, the Jewish people are going to be enveloped by these magical clouds, by day, magical pillar of fire by night, and that will enable them to travel by day and by night. Why were they traveling by day and by night? Why don't they travel just by day and rest at night? So there's a few answers given. Some of them are that right now they're about to go to Sinai to get the Torah. And that is so critical, to not have too much of a break. The Jewish people are leaving Egypt, they're having the Exodus, but that in itself is incomplete. The goal of the Exodus is not just to be free, but it is to be free from Egypt and to be subjugated instead to God. How does that happen? How How do we become subjugated to God? That is via Torah, which we're going to get at Sinai. And therefore, we want to expedite the process from the Exodus to Sinai, and therefore they traveled by day and by night. Alternatively, one of the other answers given by the commentators, the reason why they traveled by day and by night is because... They wanted to goad Pharaoh into pursuing them. Pharaoh is still under the impression that the Jewish people are going for three days and coming right back. Of course, that's not happening. We are out and we're not coming back, but we want you to pursue so that we can have the tremendous miracles at the Sea of Reeds. Chapter 14 begins. God tells Moses, tell the Jewish people, let them turn back and encamp by pi between Middal and between the sea. In front of Balthophon, Balthophon is one of the Egyptian pagan gods, and you should encamp opposite it by the sea. So God's telling Moses the specific place where the Jewish people should go right now, which happens to be opposite the idol. And then Pharaoh will say that the Jewish people are imprisoned. They're trapped they're locked in, they're confused, they don't know where to go, and that will allow me, says God, to strengthen Pharaoh's heart, he'll pursue you, and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and his entire army, everyone will know that I am Hashem. So this is interesting. The Almighty tells Moses to position the Jewish people in a way to give the impression of confusion, and thereby deceive the Egyptians, and coach them, and goad them into pursuing the Jewish people, and precipitating those tremendous miracles at the sea. And specifically, Jewish people are told to encamp by the idol because that was the only idol that was not yet destroyed. And Pharaoh will think, oh, we still have some power. They're by this idol. They can't depart it. And therefore, Pharaoh will think that, that that he has an opportunity to attack the Jewish people. They're still vulnerable, and therefore, he will pursue them. And it's kind of interesting to contrast the Jewish people where God deliberately caused them to avoid the challenge by taking them via circuitous route. God tells them, don't go directly through the land of the Philistines. Why? Because that may lead you into trouble. And specifically with Pharaoh, it's the exact opposite. God, God's going to manipulate the events to deceive him to lead him specifically into trouble. God is going to make sure the Jewish people are out of trouble and the Egyptians are in trouble. How is that fear? Why is that so? So there's a principle that we see in many places in the Talmud that in the way that a person wants to go, in the path that they desire, that is the path down which God will lead them. And therefore, the Jewish people wanted a path of purity and God will manipulate events to ensure that indeed they get what they want. Pharaoh, his ultimate desire was impurity, and therefore God availed for him that opportunity. So it was told to the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and the servants became transformed regarding the Jewish people. What did we do? We sent the Jewish people out. They're going to stop serving us. This is a disaster. We have to go pursue them. Rashi tells us that Pharaoh sent spies with the Jewish people to go monitor their behavior and therefore for three days they're walking with them and after three days they're ostensibly supposed to come back home. They see they don't come home those spies hustle back to Pharaoh on the fourth day then they tell him what happened and on the fifth day and the sixth day they pursue them and the eve of the seventh day they catch up to them and that of course is the seventh day of the exodus which corresponds to the seventh day of Pesach, the day that we celebrate the splitting of the sea, because that's what's going to happen on this day. Now, Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and attracted his people with them. Rashi tells us that Pharaoh had to cajole the people to pursue. He promised them money They took our money after all. They're leaving with our gold. We have to go get them. And if we get them, I'm going to give you the money. And Pharaoh also displayed gallantry. He says, I'm not going to go at the back of the line. I'm not going to be like all the other kings. I'm going to go ahead of everyone. And by presenting the people with those arguments, Pharaoh was successful in lobbying them to follow him to go pursue the Jewish people. And Pharaoh took 600 elite chariots and all the chariots of Egypt, with officers upon them all. How did the Egyptians have chariots? After all, didn't all the animals die in the plagues in Egypt? So Rashi tells us something really interesting. Rashi says that during the plague of hail, those that fear God, those Egyptians that feared God, brought in their animals. And therefore, there were, there were, there were some Egyptians that indeed feared God And they were able to preserve their animals, and that's the animals that were used to pursue the Jewish people. And Rashi adds, quoting from the Talmud, that from here, Rabbi Shimon used to say, the most righteous of the Egyptians you should kill, the best, the most moral of the snakes you should shatter his brain. Meaning that even the quote unquote God fearing Egyptians, they were the ones who hunted the Jews down in hot pursuit. You have a snake. The snake is the, is the really good snake. It's really docile. It's really friendly, but it's still a snake. And therefore, its nature, its inherent character can't be changed. And it's dangerous. It's a viper. It will kill you. It will try to kill you at least. And therefore, you should shatter its brain. Similarly, the Egyptians, the ones who feared God, these are the righteous ones. Yet even those people are dangerous. Even those people came after us and tried to kill us. So we're about to have the showdown. Egypt pursued them and overtook them, encamped by the sea. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and the army, they're all by Piach by balsaphon And Pharaoh approached and the Israelites, the children of Israel, raised their eyes. And behold, Egypt was journeying after them. And they were... Terribly frightened, and the children of Israel cried out to Hashem. They, until recently, were subjects of Pharaoh. They had the miracles of the plagues. They're leaving, and now they're totally surrounded. They have the they have the sea on one side. The Egyptians are encircling them, and they, this is it. This is the end. And the Jewish people cried out to God. And the midrash here tells us something astonishing. Why did God do that to the Jewish people? Because God is desirous of our prayer. God placed us in a perilous situation precisely so that we would pray. And the Midrash adds an analogy. There was a king who was traveling and he heard that there was a princess being attacked and assaulted. And right away, he ran over and saved her. And he liked her and eventually married her. And he wanted her to talk to him and to speak to him. But she didn't want to talk to him. So what did the king do? He created a false attack and he hired, quote unquote, robbers to go attack her again. And once again, once the robbers attacked her, she again cried out to the king. And the king again came in to save her. So too, the Jews in Egypt, they were subjugated to Pharaoh and they they cried out to God. And God said, okay, I'm going to take you out. And God takes them out and... Right away, God wants to hear them again and they don't cry out to him and they don't pray to him, their relationship they sever and therefore God goads them into prayer by once again artificially creating the threat by bringing in the Egyptians. And the Midrash adds that when the Jewish people saw Egypt surrounding them, they quickly repented and the Talmud concludes That Pharaoh, surrounded Jewish people, was more efficacious than a hundred fasts and prayers. Because until they were in a pinch, until they were surrounded by their enemies, they didn't cry out to God, they didn't pray, they didn't repent. And once God artificially created the danger, they repented. I think this might be a valuable lesson for us to know that sometimes the Almighty is going to put us in situations by design where we think we're in tremendous danger, but really this is his way of getting our attention and getting us to pray. And if we want to avoid those perilous situations, we don't want to have that danger, then we don't give him a reason to put us in that danger by always having a relationship with him and not forcing him, so to speak, to put us in this artificial danger so that we call out to him. Rashi here tells us that when the Jewish people cried out to God, they seized upon the craft of their fathers. Abraham, he prayed. Isaac, he prayed. Jacob, he prayed. The craft of the Jewish people is prayer. This is almost the instinct of the Jewish people. When we are in danger, we cry out to God. And even people, by the way, that are distant from God, that are maybe not regular prayers, they don't go to shul very often. They don't. They're not normal synagogue atten- attendees. But when they're in danger, there's something instinctual amongst the Jewish people. It's the craft of our forefathers. It's buried deep into our DNA. We have a certain faith and a certain relationship with God. When we're in danger, we cry out to him. Sometimes that is dormant. And in the face of death, when we're really scared, when we're surrounded by our enemies, it emerges. The Talmud tells us that one of the ways that we could defeat the Sahara is by contemplating on the day of death. Why? Because when we are facing our own mortality, it erases the inhibitors and exposes our latent soul and the craft of our forefathers, our deepest connection that we have with the Almighty surfaces to the top, and we're able to get rid of any of the other counteracting elements. The Eighth disappears, and we resume being close to God. After the Jewish people finish praying, they go over to Moses and they say to him, are there no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness? What do you do? Why do you take us out? We should have stayed there. It's better for us to serve Egypt than to die in the wilderness. Moses comforts the people. Don't fear. Stand fast. You'll see the salvation of Hashem that he'll perform for you today. You see Egypt today, you're not going to see them ever again. In fact, the Ramban understands that this verse, verse 13 is actually a mitzvah that we're not allowed to see them ever again. We're going to be completely severed from them, continues Moses. Hashem will make war for you, and you shall remain silent. And then verse 15 is kind of an interesting verse. God says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Speak to the children of Israel and let them journey forth. Rashi tells us that Moses was in the middle of praying, And God says, no, 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 this is not the right time to pray. It's inappropriate for you to pray. Don't pray to me right now. Speak to the children of Israel and let's go. And this is interesting. You know, just five verses earlier, the Jewish people are praised for praying. We're told, oh, they they seized onto the craft of their forefathers. They're in danger. They pray. Amazing. And here Moses is praying too, and he's rebuked for praying at the same time for the same thing. And I think this is, in fact, the only time in the Torah where someone is being castigated for praying. And my grandfather explained that there's really two kinds of prayers. There's prayers at a time of crisis, at a time of need. And that's called a short prayer. And that is a prayer where you focus specifically and only solely on what you need. I'm in trouble. Help me. What about when there's no crisis? What kind of prayer is appropriate for that time? In that time... It's time for a longer prayer. It's time for a prayer to try to foster a deep relationship between man and God. Both prayers connect us to him. Both bolster the relationship that we have with God. But there's a short prayer for a time of need. It's a short burst of prayer. And there's a long prayer where there is no need. Moses is being criticized not for praying, but for the type of prayer that he was doing. He was doing a long prayer in a time when a short prayer was appropriate. Why do you cry to me, he says God, it's time to go. Give a short prayer and let's move on. And you, lift up your staff, stretch out your arm over the sea and split it. And the children of Israel shall come in midst of the sea on dry land. And in addition, I will strengthen Pharaoh's heart and he will come and pursue you. And I will be glorified through Pharaoh and his entire army. It's going to be the final crescendo of all the miracles of the exodus and in fact the midrash here lists 10 different miracles that happened. all different kinds of miracles for example that it split into 12 different walkable paths one for each tribe how the seabed was not muddy at all for the jewish people and how it even though the water was salt water it became sweet they were able to drink from it All kinds of miracles were happening. In fact, we read every year during the Haggadah that there's three different opinions as to how many miracles happened at the splitting of the sea. Of course, there were 10 plagues, 10 miracles that happened in Egypt during the Exodus. At the sea, there's a three-way dispute that we read in the Haggadah. According to one opinion, there were 50 miracles that happened at the sea, meaning it was five times as impressive as what happened in Egypt. A second opinion was that there were 200 miracles 20 times more impressive, and the third opinion, the pit of Rabbi Akiva, is that it was 250 miracles, 25 times as impressive as what happened in Egypt happened at the splitting of the sea. In verse 19, we read that the angel of God, who had been going in front of the camp of Israel, moved and went behind it. So the angel of God, in the form of the pillar, went to separate between the camp of Israel and the camp of, uh, and the camp of Egypt It was there as a buffer protecting the Jewish people. Egypt was shooting all kinds of projectiles and spears and swords into the Jewish people. And this cloud, this magical force separated the two, protected the Jewish people, swallowed up the the arrows, even shot them back at the Egyptians and protected the Jewish people. Rashi points out that it says the angel of God, it says Malach Elohim, uh, the angel of God in the name of God that connotes judgment. It says Rashi that the Jewish people were amidst judgment. Would they be saved? Would they not be saved? Are they worthy of the miracles? Are they not worthy of the miracles? And the obvious question is, well, why are they being judged now? After all, they've already experienced tremendous miracles in the Exodus. Why are they being judged right now? Shouldn't the judgment have already been completed? And the answer is, is that every progressive successive stage requires a new evaluation. Jewish people are about to experience something never seen before in history, never to be repeated, a miracle of incredible proportions. And even though the miracles of Egypt they experienced, they were worthy, they were judged for that level. Now they need to be judged for the next level. They're going to be upgraded now. And therefore, it's a question. Are they worthy? Are they not? And we're told, of course, the answer is that they are worthy. It came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud and darkness while it illuminated the night. There was cloud and darkness for the Egyptians. There was light and illumination for the Jews, and the two camps were separate from each other for the entirety of the night. Rashi quotes a Midrash. The Midrash tells an analogy, a story of a person who was walking with his son, and a group of bandits came to attack him. So he takes the son from in front of him and puts him behind him to protect him from the bandits. And then a wolf came from behind and he put him in front of him. And then from one side came a wolf and then from the second side came bandits and he put him on top of him. Similarly, the Jewish people, they're surrounded in, in all sides by God and God is protecting them at every step of the way. And I think this analogy goes somewhat deeper. Here in the analogy, it's an analogy of a father and a son. Here, at this point, at this juncture in history, we're being upgraded to being like the children of God. And God's going to protect us as a father would protect his child. And Moses stretched out his arm over the sea, and Hashem moved the sea with a strong easternly wind the entire night. And he turned the sea into damp land, and the water split. The children of Israel came within the sea on dry land, and the waters were a wall for them on their right and on their left. Rashi tells us something interesting, that not only did the waters of the sea split, but all the waters in the entire world split at that time. Now, it is interesting that there's these ferocious, strong winds the entire night. Why are there winds the whole night before splitting of the sea in the morning? And the answer that the commentaries tell us is that this is a pattern that we see throughout all the miracles that happened, that a miracle, after all, is going to create a theological problem. One of the rules of our world is that free will has to exist. The Almighty is not going to do something that is going to counteract the ability of people to have free will. Well, what happens when there's a miracle? When there's a miracle and there's no way to attribute the miracle to anything besides for God intervening, well... That's going to counteract people's ability to make free will choices. They can no longer deny the existence of God and his intervention for the people that he's doing the miracle for. And therefore, free will is now going to be limited. And therefore, the pattern is, is that God is going to minimize the miracle and give all kinds of other ways for someone to answer and to explain the phenomenon that was the miracle And therefore, leaving the door open for heresy and preserving the integrity of free will. Of course, God split the sea. And of course, it's really hard to deny that miracle. But what if someone really, really wants to deny the miracle? You know what they would say? They'd find a way out. They'd have something to hang their hat on. They would say, you know what? There was a wind. There was a tornado. There was a hurricane. And sometimes when a tornado hits the sea, it actually does clear out some of the water. And when a hurricane happens, it changes the tides and it causes all kinds of unusual phenomena to happen. And that's what really happened. Well, maybe that is that is neat so. And if someone really wants to rely upon that, they could do that. The obvious question to them is, well, isn't that a fortuitous natural phenomenon the jewish people are in danger and god says they're going to be saved and god tells us about the miracle and the miracle happens maybe the miracle happened via a hurricane but so what it is a miracle nonetheless that's one side of the argument but the free will still exists because someone says you know what there was a hurricane and hurricanes happen and this is all a natural phenomenon nothing to see here no miracle Uh, Some of the commentators add that once the temple was built, or at least the altar was built, there was a magical godly fire that kept the fire on top of the altar lit at all times. However, nonetheless, the Jewish people would always put wood on top of the altar, top of the pyre, to give the impression of a miracle not happening, even though it was a miracle, but the miracle is minimized by us, so to speak, contributing by adding wood to the fire. So the Jewish people are walking amidst the sea, and Egypt makes the foolish decision to pursue them. Every horse of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, all in the midst of the sea. And it happened at the morning watch that Hashem looked down at the camp of Egypt with with a pillar of fire and cloud, and he confounded the camp of Egypt. He removed the wheels of the chariots and caused them to drive with difficulty. Egypt said, I shall flee before Israel, for Hashem is waging war for them against Egypt. On one hand, there was a pillar of cloud. On the other hand, there was a pillar of fire. The cloud made the floor under the Egyptians like clay. The fire made it like fire and the hooves of their horses fell off and they got derailed and it became evident to all that the Almighty is waging a war for the Jewish people against The Egyptians. Hashem said to Moses, "Stretch out your hand again over the sea, and the waters will descend back upon Egypt, upon its chariots, upon its horsemen." Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and towards morning, the waters went back to its power as the Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and Hashem churned Egypt in midst of the sea. So here you have, in one scene, you have the Jewish people walking in dry land amidst walls of water on each side in that very same sea of the Egyptians that now the water is washing over them and churning them, shooting them up, shooting them down, shaking them like a canister, and they are being destroyed. To such a degree, the water came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army who were coming behind them in the sea, and there remained not a one of them. Some of the commentaries read this as, there remained only one, only Pharaoh survived, Only Pharaoh survived to tell the tale and to share these amazing stories to his people. The children of Israel were on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the water was a wall for them on their right and on their left. Again, that is repeated, this tremendous miracle that that the waters turn into walls around the Jewish people. And again, simultaneously, the wind is affecting the water on one part of it to be dry for the Jewish people to have these walls of water on each side. And simultaneously, the wind is causing the waters to crash down on the Egyptians in the very same sea. On that day, Hashem saved Israel from the hand of Egypt, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great hand that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt, and the people revered Hashem, and they had faith in Hashem and in Moses, his servant. It's interesting. We read earlier in chapter 4 I believe that the Jewish people actually already believed in God and believed in Moses and here we're told again that they had faith in a shaman and in Moses and furthermore next parsha we're going to read in the run up to the to the ten commandments at Sinai God explains to Moses that the objective of that is that the Jewish people will believe in God and believe in Moses so I don't get it if they believe already in the past what, what does it mean that they believe over here? And if they believed over here, what does it mean that they believe in the future? What this tells us is that there are many different levels of faith. Yes, they believed earlier, but that was upgraded. They believe even more now. And even though they believe now, their belief will intensify and deepen later on at the revelation at Sinai. The commentaries also look at the fact that the people feared Hashem and they had faith in Hashem and in Moses. Typically, we think of fear as a byproduct of, Of faith. And here we see that faith is a byproduct of fear. And my grandfather would say from his Rebbe, from his teacher, that you cannot talk to a drunkard about faith. First, you need to have sobriety, and then you can move on to faith. When it says the Jewish people feared God, that means that they had sobriety, spiritual sobriety, and therefore they were able to have faith in God and in Moses, his servant. And what followed after this amazing miracle is chapter 15, an eruption of spontaneous song. Then Moses and the children of Israel chose to sing this song to Hashem. And they said the following, I shall sing to Hashem for he is exalted above the arrogant, having hurled horse and its rider into the sea. What's going to follow now is one of the few times in the Torah we have a shira, we have a song. And in fact, we read this every morning. In the Shachar's prayer, the song at the sea, a result of spontaneous eruption and song. This is not something that could have been written down, could have been planned. This was spontaneous. This is something that's not relegated to the cognitive arena. This is something that penetrated the heart. The Jewish people experienced an unparalleled revelation, and they right away concretized that with this amazing song. The might And vengeance of God was a salvation for me. This is my God. I will build him a sanctuary, the God of my father, and I will exalt him. This is the first of three times in the song at the sea where there is an invocation of the sanctuary. Hashem is master of war. His name is Hashem. And it details all the miracles that happened at the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and army were thrown into the sea and the officers died, deep waters covered them, they descended into the depths like stone. Rashi points out that it's described a little bit later on that the, the Egyptians uh, drowned like lead, and in addition, it's told that they drowned like straw. So which one is it? Was it like straw, was it like a stone, or was it like lead? So Rashi explains that, of course, these three materials drown at different rates, The lead drops to the bottom right away, drowns right away. The stone drops pretty fast, but not as fast as the lead. And the straw, well, that floats a lot and takes a while for it to drop and to drown. Similarly, the most righteous of the Egyptians drowned like lead. The less righteous drowned like a stone. And the totally wicked ones drowned like straw. Even the Egyptians who are being punished now, for their sins and for their heinous behavior and heinous crimes, even amongst them, God is going to give exactly what they need. The punishment is going to be fitting the crime. It's going to be appropriate. And people are going to be judged on an individual level. Your right hand, Hashem, is glorified with strength. Your right hand, Hashem, smashes the enemy. Rashi tells us that here God is described as having two right hands. says Rashi something fascinating. That when the Jewish people do the will of God... His left hand, so to speak, becomes like his right hand. Generally speaking, God treats us with kindness with his right hand and with firmness with judgment with his left hand. The Almighty's kindness and benevolence outweighs, is stronger than his firmness and judgment that he gives us. However, when we do his will, we could change how God treats us. We could transform his left hand, his erstwhile force of judgment into another force of kindness in your abundant grandeur you shattered your opponents you send forth your wrath it is it consumed them like straw who are the opponents of god rashi tells us over here that the opponents of the jewish people are like the opponents of god we when we're doing what is required of us. When we're behaving in a way that is fitting for the nation of God, we become like the ambassadors of God. We represent him and therefore an attack against us is considered as an attack against God. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were heaped up. Straight up like a wall stood the running water and deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy declared, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide, plunder, I will satisfy my lust with them. I will unsheath my sword. My hand will impoverish them. You blew with your wind, the sea enshrouded them, and the mighty saint-like lead to the water. Who is like you amongst the heavenly powers, Hashem? Who is like you, mighty in holiness, too awesome to praise, doer of wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them with your kindness. You guided these people that you redeemed. You led with your might to your holy abode. This is again the second time that it references the temple. Why are we referencing the temple amidst this tremendous song? There's a few answers. Some of the answers are that when the Jewish people have a tremendous inspiration, a unparalleled experience, an experience that we're told in Rashi here and in the commentaries in the Talmud, that is unrivaled even by the great prophecies of Ezekiel, a mere servant at the sea witness god with greater clarity with greater prophecy than the great prophet ezekiel something like that has to immediately be concretized in action the jewish people said we have this now let's right away find some way to actualize it with a place of worship for god that's one answer perhaps of a connection between the song and the temple And maybe another way of understanding what the connection between the temple and the song at the sea is that the Jewish people here experienced prophecy. They experienced faith in a very tangible way. And we know, like we're told in the Mishnah, there's tangible miracles that were experienced in the temple on an ongoing basis. Once they got a taste of what it's like to have this close relationship with God, to be able to experience spirituality and prophecy in a tangible level, they wanted to find a way to do that on a more permanent basis and therefore they said, okay, let's, we're ready for the temple, and they invoked that in this song. May fear and terror befall them at, at your greatness of your arm. May they be still as stone until your people pass through them. Once the Jewish people are going through this tremendous miracle, they're praying to God, let this dread that befell upon our enemies continue against all our enemies. And the song ends when Pharaoh's cavalry came with his chariots and horsemen to the sea and Hashem turned back the waters of the sea upon them. The children of Israel walked on the dry land amidst the sea. And then it wasn't just the men who were singing, the women sang too. Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the drum in her hand and all the women went forth after with drums and with dances. Miriam spoke to them, sing to Hashem for he is exalted above the arrogant, having hurled horse with its rider, into the sea why is she called the sister of Aaron we know she's the sister of Aaron and the sister of Moses so Rashi explains that Miriam is called here Miriam the prophetess and she prophesied when she was only the sister of Aaron namely before Moses was born she prophesied that her mother's gonna have a child that's going to save the Jewish people the rabban gives a different answer he says well in this particular section Moses is mentioned Miriam is mentioned, therefore it's appropriate not to leave Aaron out. So it throws in the fact that Miriam the prophetess was the sister of Aaron. So Egypt is finally vanquished. And now it's time to continue our journey. So Moses caused Israel to journey from the Sea of Reeds, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur, and they went for three days in the wilderness, but they did not find water. This is a very interesting verse. Immediately after the zine of the, of the song, they're going to travel and they're going to go and face tremendous challenges. But if you read the words quite critically, Moses caused Israel to leave. Why did Moses have to force them to leave? Why did he have to compel them to go? So Rashi tells us that the Egyptians adorned their chariots and their and their animals with all kinds of gold and silver and precious stones. And in fact, the booty of the sea exceeded the booty of egypt and therefore the jewish people are, are picking up all this gold and moses wants to get them out of there. he wants to get them packed, and he had to compel them to leave what was he so concerned about why not give them more time to take more gold so one of the commentators the kliakr tells us that we find out later on the jewish people are going to sin in the sin of the golden calf and our sages tell us that the reason why they sinned is because they had an overabundance of gold and silver and therefore Moses was worried of the spiritual tarnishment that's going to result from having too much gold and silver, so he wanted them to leave, take some, okay, but let's go, let's head out. And they travel for three days, and they don't find water. And this is interesting, one verse, precisely one verse, after the tremendous, exultant, exuberant song, they are faced with an absolute existential thirst, three days with no water. This is sort of a jarring transformation, from this tremendous heights, and now there's three days with no water. And the answer, the explanation to that is that our challenges are in direct proportion to our revelations of God. The more miracles that we have, the the higher, so to speak, God treats us, he's also going to heighten the challenges that will heighten our opposition to him. The miracles are great, but if if you have no water to drink, you still have a problem. And again, this is the same theme that we spoke about earlier. That miracles have to be made in a way that they're not going to counteract free will, and therefore, despite this tremendous miracle, there is still something to complain about. You're going three days without water. So the Jewish people arrive in Mara. They can't drink water from there because the waters of Mara are bitter. In fact, the word Mara means bitter. And the people complain against Moses. What are we going to drink? So Moses cries out to Hashem. And Hashem shows him a tree. He throws it into the water, and the water is sweetened. There he established for the nation a decree and an ordinance, and there he tested them. So a tremendous miracle happens. God shows Moshe a tree, a staff, a stick he throws into the water. The water is sweetened. And in this place, in the city of Mara, the Jewish people are given a decree and an ordinance. This is the beginning of them getting the Torah. Why? Says Rashi, in the place of Mara, in this first juncture where they stopped after the splitting of the sea— they got three particular laws, the laws of Shabbos, the laws of, of interpersonal monetary laws, and Parah Aduma, the laws of the red heifer. And of course, all the commentators try to grapple, what does this mean? Why specifically these three? Uh, one of the answers is uh, that the, we know the Parah Aduma, the red heifer, is the mitzvah that most typifies a chok, a mitzvah that is illogical to human intellect. Maybe the argument is before Sinai, before the tremendous, tremendous revelation, before they're going to get the entire body of the Torah, a prerequisite of Torah is to know that Torah is going to originate from a higher intellect, from an intellect that is beyond what we can possibly grasp. And in the city of Marah, God tells Moses and Moses tells the Jewish people, if you hearken diligently to the voice of Hashem, your God, and you do what is just in his eyes, and you heed his commandments, you observe his decrees... All the diseases that I placed in Egypt, I will not. I will not bring upon you, for I am sham your healer. Here we're told that Torah and mitzvot are like medicine, both prophylactic and remedial. If the Jewish people listen to Him, God, God guarantees He is the healer. All the illnesses that He brings upon Egypt, He will not place upon us. He is our healer if we just obey His mitzvot. And then they arrived in Elim, there were 12 springs of water, one for each tribe, 70 date palms, one for each one of the elders, and they encamped by the water. So this is quite an eventful first month since the Exodus. Uh, They have the splitting of the sea seven days later, and now they arrived in Elim, and it's a month after the Exodus. And they journeyed from Elim, and the entire assembly of Israel arrived at the wilderness of Sin. And this is near Sinai, and this is the 15th day of the second month from the departure. So this is exactly one month from when they left. And the entire assembly of the children of Israel complained a second time, there is no food, we're going to die. If you remember, when they left Egypt, they took with them matzah. That matzah lasted for them for a month. And now that matzah is done. There's no food, they're in the wilderness, there's a nation of millions of people. What's going to be? The Jewish people complain. Maybe it's better for us to have died in Egypt than to come out in the wilderness and to have us all die at a famine. And once again, the Almighty is going to do a tremendous miracle. Hashem said to Moses, Behold, I shall rain down for you food from heaven. Let the people go out and pick it each day's portion on its day so that I can test them whether they will follow my teachings or not. I'm going to give you magical food raining down from heaven in order that I can test them. What's the test? So Rashi tells us that it's to fulfill the mitzvos that are the related to the manna. Namely, to not leave any over it every day and not to go out on Shabbos to collect it. The Rabban expands this, uh, this test uh, greatly. He says that the manna is a lesson in daily uncertainty. They're going to get daily bread, not weekly. They're not going to get a stockpile. They're not going to have anything left over for them. Every day they're going to live with a certain uncertainty. Will they get bread tomorrow or will they die? And that is a tremendous miracle. You know, if you have food for today, it's great. But if you're concerned about what's going to be for tomorrow, that's very difficult. And the Talmud tells us that in order for someone to have real, complete, true faith, they have to rely on God, not only for today's food, but tomorrow's food, even if there are empty cupboards. And that's a tremendous test, says the Ramban. The test is will the Jewish people be able to bear living a life where each and every day they're totally 100% reliant on God, the food they're going to have today, they cannot save it for tomorrow. If you save it for tomorrow, it's going to rot. There's no way to be pragmatic about it. There's no way to have a nest egg of safety. Each and every day you are relying on God. The Talmud tells us that the students asked Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, why did God not give Once a year, to the Jewish people, manna. Why is it every single day? And he tells us an example of a child who gets his food from his father, who is the king, and he gets the food once a year. So what happens? Every year he comes to his father, the king, and asks for food, asks for his sustenance, asks for his stipend. And that's their only connection. There's a minimal connection. Whereas if the king says, I'm going to give it to you every single day, every single day the child has to have a connection with God. So too, The Jewish people, every day they're going to get manna from heaven, and every day they're going to have a special connection between themselves and the Almighty. And again, this is the second time we've seen in our Parsha a comparison brought down by our sages connecting the Jewish people to God as children to a father. So this is the manna. Every day they're going to get a portion of manna. On the sixth day, on Friday, they're going to get a double portion And at night, then I get the quail, the meat that they're going to get to eat. Bread in the morning, manna in the morning, and meat at night. So Moses gathers the people and conveys this amazing message. I heard the complaints. I'm going to give them the manna. And evening, the quail ascended. In the morning, there was a layer of dew surrounding the camp, and each person, each family had like a gift wrapped. You know, dew on bottom, dew on top, and manna in between. A tremendous miracle covering the entirety of the camp, thin, frosted, magical, white manna. The Jewish people don't, the Jewish people don't know what it is. They say manna who, they, they say manhu, what is it? Which is the name of, of manna in Hebrew is man, what is it? And Moshe tells them, this is what you should gather, bring it home, Try take as much as you need for your family, each one in accordance to what they have in their family, bring home, some people brought home a lot, some people brought home a little, and magically it did not matter, whatever you brought, it doesn't matter. In the end, the people brought less were not lacking, the people brought more had nothing extra. Each one got exactly what they need for that day and that day alone. And the Rabbani here tells us a little bit more about the manna. The Talmud tells us that the manna is compared to Lechem Abirim, What does that mean exactly is somewhat of a question. According to one opinion of the Talmud, it means this is food of the angels. This is the food that the angels, the ministering angels of God, eat. And according to the other opinions, they say, well, angels don't eat anything. And therefore, what it means is is that this food would be subsumed into your body. And the word avirim is from the word avirim, which means your limbs. This food would totally get swallowed up into your limbs you wouldn't need to go to the bathroom for it. There's nothing extra. Everything that you had was precisely what you needed, no more and no less. So this is an incredible thing. You know, For for 40 years, the Jewish people are going to be sustained with daily manna from heaven. And this is not just one isolated miracle. Think about it. This is a nation of millions of people with several meals a day. Even if you assume it's only two meals a day, we're talking about Billions and billions and billions of meals served over the course of 40 years, a tremendous, unparalleled, and unprecedented miracle. My grandfather would tell us that manna was like spiritual food. It's food of angels. If we were to eat it, we would stay hungry. It was spiritual nourishment divested of any physical entrapments And therefore, it would be very hard for us beings, the people who are not saved by God, the people who are not on the level of prophets, so to speak, witnessing these tremendous revelations at the exodus by Egypt, at the splitting of the sea, we'd have a hard time appreciating the sublimity of this tremendous food. And Moses conveys to the people the instructions, You you cannot leave any left over for the morning, some people didn't obey. Who are those people? Those are the same people who caused trouble in Egypt, Dasam and Aviram. They left over until the morning and it became infested with worms and it stank. And Moshe got angry at them again. And this is something that you have to rely upon day by day. You cannot save for tomorrow. They gathered it in the morning, each morning, each man according to what you need. And when the sun arose, it melted It turned into streams and rivers of manna that animals would eat from, and even the nations of the world who would catch and trap and consume those animals would be able to taste a little bit of the flavor of the manna. And on day six, well, a miracle happened. A double miracle, a double portion of manna, twice the amount of daily allotment that the Jewish people got every day, they got on Friday. And they quickly came to Moses, what does this mean? And Moses explains, this is what Hashem had spoken, tomorrow is a rest day, a holy Shabbos for Hashem, do what you want, bake what you want, cook what you want, prepare for Shabbos, because tomorrow you're not going to get any manna in the fields, you got a double portion today, one for today and one for tomorrow, in fact, Until this day on Shabbos meals, we have two loaves of bread, two challahs that we have on our table as a remembrance for the double portion of manna for the 40 years in the wilderness. On this day, the food that you keep over from one day to the next will not stink, will not spoil, and will have no infestation. This is Shabbos. You eat for today and you have enough for tomorrow. And tomorrow, don't go out. If you go out, you're not going to find any. And of course, there were some people that went out and they did not find any. And Hashem tells Moses, how long will these people continue to sin? How long will you refuse to obey my commandments and my teachings? Hashem has given you the Shabbos. This is why he gives you on the sixth day a double portion. Stay in your place. Don't leave your place on the seventh day. And the people rested on the seventh day. And according to the Rambam, in fact, this is the mitzvah of the Parsha. Like we mentioned at the beginning, there's only one mitzvah in this parsha, and that is the restriction against leaving the domain on Shabbos. You're only allowed to walk up to 2,000 amos, 2,000 cubits outside of the encampment. You cannot walk out anymore. Rashi argues. Rashi says that's not a mitzvah from the Torah, that's a rabbinic mitzvah, and this is the attribution as the verse, but it's not a torah mitzvah, and Uh, And the Midrash tells tells us here that the people actually got nervous. They got a double portion on Friday. That sounds like an amazing bounty. But they're worried that there's a disruption of the normal pattern. Maybe it's not going to come again. Maybe this is it. And Moshe reassured them. Moses reassured them. Don't worry. This is a special thing for Shabbos. It's going to come again on Sunday with a single portion of manna. And then Moshe is instructed by God to make the manna into an eternal lesson forever. Take a vial of manna, fill it up, and keep it for posterity forever. To be an eternal testament to the fact that the Almighty will feed us. And indeed, they kept it for centuries To remember that this is the food that God served us in the wilderness when he took us out of Egypt. Rashi tells us in the times of Jeremiah, the Jewish people were not studying Torah sufficiently. And Jeremiah castigated the people, why are you not studying Torah sufficiently? And they said to them, well, who's going to feed our family? And Jeremiah pulled out the vial of manna and showed them, look, if God wants to feed you, if you're doing what he wants from you, he will feed you just like he did with this magical manna food to your ancestors when they left Egypt. And the chapter concludes, the children of Israel ate the manna for 40 years until they arrived in the inhabited land, until they arrived in the land of Canaan, and they ate it until they entered the land. In fact, the Jewish people started eating the manna on the 15th day of Er, And when Moses died on the seventh day of Adar, the manna stopped. So in fact, what you have is a little more than two months that are missing from the total of 40 years. So the Talmud tells us that when the Jewish people left Egypt, they took the matzah, they ate that for the first month, and that tasted like manna. So really the manna started when they left from Egypt. And the Talmud also tells us that after Moses died, that particular day's manna lasted them from the seventh day of Adar until the 15th day of Nisan, thus bringing the total time when the Jewish people ate manna, either real manna or matzah that tastes like manna to exactly 40 years to the day and chapter 17 begins with another crisis they travel from the wilderness of sin according to the journeys they landed in a place called refidim and again there is no water again the jewish people complaining what's going to be do you want us to die and moses cries out to god what shall i do these people they're going to stone me and god tells moses this is what you do you take your staff you find this rock and you strike the rock, the rock will split open, and it's going to emit enough water for the entire nation. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Maso Meriva because of the contention of the children of Israel, because of their test of Hashem, asking, is God amongst us or is God not amongst us? The Jewish people were concerned about this staff. This staff is an omen of bad things. It's only used to punish And therefore, God tells Moses, take this same staff that you used to punish Pharaoh and use it to give enough water for a nation of millions to drink, water that is magically, miraculously emitted from a stone. And the Parsha concludes with the first war that the Jewish people waged, where Amalek, the eternal nemesis of the Jewish people, came and they battled Israel in that place in Rephidim. This is a little more than a month after the Exodus. This is even before the Mount Sinai experience. And Amalek is attacking and they're going to respond with fighting back in a war. Rashi tells us here something very fascinating. Why is there a juxtaposition of the episode of refridim where the Jewish people are complaining they don't have enough water? The Jewish people are wondering, is God with us or is God not with us? Why is that juxtaposed to the episode of Amalek? So Rashi tells us the Jewish people are wondering, is God with us, is God not with us? God says, oh, you're wondering where I am? You don't think I'm with you? I'm going to cause a proverbial dog to come and attack you. And he gives us another muscle, another parable. A man was carrying his son on his shoulder and they went out to 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 the path. And anything the kid wanted, he got. He sees something nice on the floor. He tells his father, go pick that up for me. Father picks that up for him. Everything the child wants, that the, the father is capitulating. And they meet a man And the son, who's right now currently on the shoulders of the father, the son asks the man, did you see my father? The father's actually holding him, taking care of him at every step. And the child still says, is he here? Is he not? The father says, oh, you don't know if I'm here? He takes him off his shoulders and he lets a dog come and bite him. Similar to the Jewish people. God's taking care of them at every step. And what are they doing? They're wondering, is Hashem with us or Hashem not with us? Oh, you're wondering whether i'm with you or whether i'm not with you i'll, I'll let the, Amalek have the opportunity to come and attack you and again this is the third time in the parsha that we're being compared to sons being carried by the father the jewish people at the exodus are being upgraded to the children to the status of children of god and therefore that comes with a lot of good things but also it means that he treats us like children and if we throw that back in his face so to speak he will punish us or train us accordingly so Amalek comes and attack, and Moses instructs Joshua to go do battle with Amalek, gather some people, and we're going to have the war. And this is an interesting illustration of how the Jewish people do warfare. Moses tells Joshua, in fact, this is the first time we meet Joshua in the Torah, go and gather people to fight the war. Well, what about me? Why am I not participating? I'm going to go on top of the mountain, and I'm going to fight the spiritual war. And this is what we're going to see here for the duration of the Torah and even during the times of Joshua, the war is going to be waged in two fronts. There's going to be the spiritual war, where the war actually happens, and then there's going to be the physical war, which is the implementation of that spiritual battle. In fact, the Zohar tells us over here that Moses went up to the mountain, and what was he doing on the mountain? He was battling with the angel of Esau, the angel of Amalek. Moses overcame that spiritual force on the spiritual plane of the war and Joshua and his people overwhelmed the Amalek's. They weakened them with the sword in the physical war. Moses goes up to the mountain. He lifts up his, he lifts up his arms. The Jewish people pray. They see the arms and that makes them successful. When he would lower his arms, then Amalek would become stronger. His hands got tired because he outsourced his job to joshua and they put stones on each side to keep his hands up for the entirety of the war after the war was concluded hashem said to moses write this down in a book and recite it in the ears of joshua i will surely erase the memory of amalek from under the heavens moses built an altar to thank god and the parsha concludes where moses says for the hand is on the throne of God, Hashem maintains a war with Amalek from generation to generation. Rashi tells us that it describes the throne of God and the name of God, both of them missing a letter. It says instead of kisei, which means chair, it says Case, which means also a chair, but missing a letter. And also the name of God is missing a letter. Says Rashi, when Amalek is present, God's name, so to speak, and God's chair, God's throne, so to speak, is incomplete. And until Amalek is destroyed, God's name, so to speak, and God's chair, and God's throne, so to speak, is not complete. Of course, God himself is not lacking, but his presence in this world is detracted by the existence of Amalek and our national mission, what Moses wrote down in the book and instructed Joshua for future generations, is to eviscerate Amalek and thereby bring God's presence into the world. This was an action-packed Parsha. The Jewish people are now on the cusp of of accepting the Torah at Sinai, and that is going to be the main subject of next week's Parsha, Parsha Yisroh.